name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 1864, two ships were wrecked on the Auckland Islands, south of New Zealand, down in the Antarctic Sea. The Auckland Islands stretch 20 miles from their northern tip to their southern tip. So these two crews found themselves stranded and struggling for survival on the same islands at the same time without ever knowing about the presence of the other. The Grafton, captained by Thomas Musgrave and a crew of four, crashed on the southern end of the island. And four months later, the second ship, the Invercal, with a crew of 25, was hurled ashore at the northern end. The question facing both of these shipwrecked crews was how they would survive the frigid merciless Antarctic winter. At first, it appeared as though the 25-man crew of the Invercald had the best chance of survival. After all, they had a much larger crew, more resources, more ability to find food and shelter. The Grafton's crew, on the other hand, only of five, seemed far too small to survive on their own. They appeared to be doomed. But was there something deeper? Was there something more than first met the eye? Did you notice the first, read, the first words of the gospel reading today? I know that was a little while ago now. <laughs> As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man blind from birth. This man had always been blind, he always would be blind. He survived by begging, living off the generosity of others. But Jesus saw something deeper than everyone else, saying, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Jesus saw something in this man that no one else had ever seen before. This man, who simply appeared to be a blind beggar, could help show God's glory. So Jesus gave this man his eyesight. What a great miracle that was. But the miracle isn't the primary thrust, or at least not, on, not the only thrust of this story. Jesus could see how this blind man could become a great missionary. Jesus could see this man's potential. And then Jesus gave him something. He didn't just give him a pat on the back. He didn't just give him advice. He gave him his sight. Jesus saw something not apparent to anyone else. He saw this man's potential to demonstrate God's love. And then Jesus equipped this man. Jesus equipped this man to serve God. Jesus equipped this man to demonstrate God's power. Jesus equipped this man to share God's love more broadly. As you know, in this Lenten season, 
We're talking about our interactions with other people, our sacred relationships. And one of the reasons we're put in relationships with other people is to help others identify the gifts or the talents or the skills that they may not see in themselves. And frankly, in return, they can help us identify the skills we may be oblivious to. In short, we are called to equip our neighbors and they us so that all of us can use the gifts God has given us to show God's love and God's power and God's grace in the world. In the Antarctic Sea on the Auckland Islands, the smaller crew, the crew of the Grafton, could have splintered. They could have mutinied against their captain. But instead, they began to look for gifts in one another. The crew began to equip one another. Knowing that their survival would depend upon their faith in God and their cohesion as a group, Captain Musgrave appointed one man to lead them in worship each Sunday. This sailor had never been trained for that. He hadn't gone to seminary, but the captain saw a deep faith in him. So Captain Musgrave declared that Sunday would be a Sabbath and no work would be done on that day. Another sailor, whose Bible had survived the wreck, donated it to their newly appointed chaplain. In short, the captain and the crew of the Grafton identified gifts in this one sailor and began to equip him for a new ministry. Last year, I read an article. It was about baseball scouts, the men and women who seem to have almost a third eye. They see potential where others can't. They will see a mediocre first baseman who has a strong arm and is an exceptionally fast runner, and they will realize that first baseman could be an exceptional outfielder. Or they'll see someone who's a good player but could become a great player with the right coaching. Their job is to see deeper and then to put players in the right position or with the right coach or on the right team where they can fully develop their skills. And the truth is that part of our call as Christians is also to be talent scouts. First, to look for talents others may have that they may not be aware of. And second, to ensure that they're on the right team or they have the right coach or they are properly trained and equipped to thrive in their ministries. And then we're called to be open to the coaching of others trying to unlock skills we don't know about in ourselves. So what does this mean in our day-to-day -day life? How can you help equip someone this week? Or how can you be open to someone who's trying to equip you this week? A few examples. First, if your spouse loves painting, but they gave it up years ago when they got too busy with work or children or household responsibilities, you could buy them a few tubes of paint and a brush, literally equipping them 
giving the, them the equipment of an artist and then encourage them to spend a little bit of time next Saturday painting. Or if you have an employee who seems to be stuck in their career, you could take them out to lunch and ask them what they love about their job and then really listen to their answer and think creatively about how their loves align with your organization's needs. And then you could equip them, send them to a conference, or help them find a place where they can build up these new skills. Or if you want to start really small, you could simply give someone an unexpected but a very honest compliment. Maybe you can help someone begin to become aware of a strength they don't even know they possess. Or maybe if someone tells you that there's something you're good at, instead of just brushing it off, you can pray for some insight and try to figure out if this is a window into a skill set you never knew you had. You see, the world is filled with people who have skills they're unaware of. You and I have gifts that we don't know about. And we are called to help one another see what is hidden beneath the surface. See what is hidden and seems maybe even invisible. Think, for example, about the disciples of Jesus. Any human resources department would have categorically rejected all dozen of the disciples for the work Jesus was setting out to do. Simon Peter was emotionally volatile. Thomas had so much doubt it could undermine team morale. James and John had such terrible tempers that they were called the, th the sons of thunder. Not a good nickname. And Matthew was a tax collector, which to translate into, into today's society would be just as bad as being a tax collector. Any human resources department interviewing the 12 would have said they, they don't have the background, the education, or the aptitude to undertake the work Jesus was setting out to do. A human resources department probably would have used language like lacking in vocational aptitude. But Jesus saw something deeper. In Simon Peter, instead of seeing volatility, Jesus saw passion. In Thomas, instead of seeing doubt, Jesus saw a deep yearning for truth and knowledge. In James and John, instead of seeing abrasive personalities, Jesus saw a longing for God's justice. And in Matthew, instead of seeing a man who had most probably cheated many of his neighbors, Jesus saw a man who was striving to build an honest future. Jesus was the greatest of talent scouts. He saw skills that others didn't know they had, and then he helped develop these skills. He helped equip his disciples. And frankly, that is what we are called to do in our relationships. But how does this work in the reality of our lives? In the Antarctic Sea, in 1864, the much larger crew of the Invercald, at first blush, 
appeared to be much better equipped for survival. However, the officers treated the sailors almost as though they were servants, and they did nothing to empower or equip the sailors to be better, better set for survival than when they'd first been hurled along the shore, hurled onto the beach. The officers ordered the crew to build an officer's cabin, and then they commanded the sailors to go gather shellfish for food. They treated the sailors more like slaves than like people who they could train and equip. And this decimated the crew's trust and morale and confidence in one another. When they exhausted the supply of shellfish, they sent the sailors to scour the area until they found a pig and they began to roast it. The man who had been ordered to care for the wounded ship's cook smelled the roasting pig and he didn't trust the other sailors to save any for him, so he left to eat. While he was away, the now abandoned ship's cook died. And when food ran out, the survivors became hungrier and hungrier, and they became angrier and angrier, and they eventually resorted to cannibalism. When these survivors were spotted by a passing ship, only three of the original 25 were still alive. On the other hand, the Grafton's crew band together. They identified skills and gifts in one another. One of the sailors knew something about shipbuilding, so the others cut down trees and they sewed together tattered pieces of cloth and made sails. The crew of the Grafton appointed a chaplain and they brought him a Bible. They appointed a shipbuilder and they brought him lumber and sails. They identified skills in one another. Their chaplain had never been to seminary and their shipbuilder had never trained at a shipyard. And then after identifying these skills, they literally equipped one another with a Bible, with lumber, with sails. And finally, having identified skills in one another and having equipped one another, they set sail together. Almost two years after originally departing from New Zealand, on seas that Shackleton would sail 50 years later in his great adventure, all five members of the Grafton's crew arrived safely, all of them, back in New Zealand. See, the difference between the crew of the Grafton and the crew of the Invercald was their willingness to identify skills in one another and to equip one another, literally life and death. The crew of the Grafton focused on identifying those around them who had God-given gifts they weren't aware of. In contrast, the crew of the Invercald demonstrated no interest in helping one another grow in identifying talents in one another or helping equip their neighbors. In order to thrive, you and I must help those around us see the gifts they possess, even gifts they're unaware of, and then we are called to help equip them for their ministry, for their work, for what God has called them to do. And that's the exact point of the passage 
we heard a few minutes ago from 1 Samuel. When Samuel came to Bethlehem to anoint the new king, he assumed it would be Jesse's eldest son, his tallest son, his strongest son, his most experienced son. But God chose the youngest son. God chose David because God saw what was hidden beneath the surface. God saw David's love of God and his compassion and his strategic mind. And Samuel anointed David with oil, empowering him, equipping him with a public demonstration of the ministry for which God was preparing him. When I was about 14 years old, the dean of the cathedral, Edward Harrison at the time, invited me to lunch one Sunday. Before going to lunch, I decided I was going to talk to Dean Harrison about this beginning of a call to ordained ministry that I was sensing. And when we sat down at lunch, before I had a chance to say anything, Dean Harrison said to me, Mark, do you think you're, you might be called to be a priest? It was one of those moments that, that began to confirm this calling in my life. But you see, equipping someone is not just telling them about something that they may be good at, but helping give them the tools, literally the equipment they need. Dean Harrison equipped me with a confidence in my calling. He gave me a license to begin talking about and exploring this call to ministry. Years later, I remember an evening while in seminary, I was sitting out with some peers in Adirondack chairs under the stars, and we were talking about our spiritual journeys. And one of my classmates, his name was Curtis, began to talk about how when he was a high schooler in Pennsylvania, one of his dad's friends, this friend was a priest, took Curtis out to lunch one day, and he asked Curtis if he thought he was called to be a priest. As this story continued, Curtis mentioned the name of this priest. It was Edward Harrison. <laughs> Suddenly, my story about my calling was not about Dean Harrison seeing something special in me, but about the fact that apparently whenever he took anyone out to lunch, he asked them if they thought they were called to be a priest. But I wonder, I really do wonder, if Dean Harrison's model might make a little bit of sense for all of us. I wonder if we are too stingy in telling others about gifts that we see in them. I wonder if we're called to be more generous in inviting others to see what is beneath the surface, gifts they may not be aware they have. I wonder if we should be more willing to search for talents in others, I wonder if we should be more charitable in giving others the resources they need to be equipped for the ministries that they're called to. And this is not only about what we're called to do for others, but about what others may be doing for us right now. I wonder if we're called to be more open to the suggestions, the proddings, the invitations of others to unlock talents in our lives. You see, Jesus' real miracle 
of restoring sight to the blind man was having a vision for this man's life, a vision that no one else could see, and then literally equipping this man with sight, giving him the power to more broadly and more powerfully share the good news of God's love and God's grace. And frankly, that's what we are called to do also, to equip others and to be equipped by others for the work that God calls each of us to. Amen.